You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see everybody today. Uh, If you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, we are just getting started in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be here for next year and a half, so (laughs) don't hold your breath. Uh, But so far in the story, uh, the angel Gabriel has made two visits to earth, one to an elderly priest named Zacharias, the other to a young teenager named Mary to announce two very special births. Uh, The birth of John the Baptist, who will be the final and greatest Old Testament prophet, and the Messiah, Jesus, who has been promised throughout the Old Testament. And uh, these both will be miraculous births. Uh, John will be born to an old couple who's never been able to have children before. And of course, Mary is born to a teenage virgin. When Gabriel tells Mary that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant, uh, Mary immediately travels from Nazareth south to Judea and uh, greets her relative, and uh, both these moms rejoice as they think about what the birth of these two special babies will be. Uh, This morning, as we continue, I want to talk about the birth of John and, and what happens there. Up to this point, Only Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary know that God is doing something new. Now a whole bunch of people are going to know as a result of John's birth. And I want to pick it up right in the middle of the passage we'll be looking at, verse 65 and 66. As a result of John's birth, fear came on all those living around them. And all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What shall this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord is certainly with him. John's birth grabs everybody's attention. What was so surprising about the birth of this baby that it becomes the topic of conversation in all the villages of of Judea? And why so much curiosity? about what this child would become. And most importantly, remember it's been 400 years since God last spoke to Israel through Malachi. 400 years of silence, and what makes these people so confident that the hand of God is gonna be with this baby? That's what I wanna look at today. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us your spirit that we might know the things that are freely given to us by you. We pray you'll be our teacher that you'll instruct us and and give us wisdom to understand, to believe, and to obey what you tell us. Pray that you'll speak to us this morning. Amen. Amen. So I just want to work through this passage real quickly. Luke tells us four surprising things about the birth of John. First is, the first surprise is the old give birth. Uh, That parents who are well past their prime uh, parents who are old and gray and who've never been able to have children have one. Uh, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. You may remember that when Elizabeth became pregnant, she went into seclusion. She, 
just didn't want to be uh, the topic of, of gossip in her little village there. So she kept herself secluded until the baby gives birth. But when she gives birth, she comes out of hiding and goes public. And everybody knows about it. A new baby is born. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. In the Bible, mercy describes what God does because he loves us. And all of her neighbors and relatives realized that an old, barren woman like, uh, like Elizabeth couldn't have a child unless God was involved. And so they're all rejoicing with her. Surprise number two, the child receives an unusual name. The Jews were described by the traditions they, they practiced. And one of the traditions was that you, may, that you named a male child on the day he was circumcised. And that's what happens in verse 59. It happened that on the eighth day, which was the traditional day for circumcision, they, meaning Zacharias and Elizabeth's relatives, neighbors, and probably the local rabbi, came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father, because that was traditional. Uh, namely, normally, a, a male child would be named after his dad, or if there was a child that already had that name after his granddad, or if that name was already taken, some other relative in the family, because it would remind the child of who he was and the honor of the family he carried and what his uh, profession was to be, because he would always follow in the steps of his father. Except all the people here expect the child to be named Zacharias Jr. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed. But he shall be called John, which is the name Gabriel gave. Well, this is a good way to start a feud with your relatives. Um, of course, you're going to name him Zacharias. Uh, how could you name him anything else? This little guy is all you got to carry on the family name. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. I mean, it's tradition. And I think they're probably thinking, if her husband could talk, he would set her straight right here. Remember, Zacharias can't talk at this point. He, he had asked the, the uh, angel for a sign that this was really going to happen, and the sign gave him, angel gave him a sign that he didn't like. He couldn't talk. <laughs> and they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. Now, I thought about that. Why do they make signs to Zacharias, who's sitting there? I think it's because not only can he not talk, he can't hear. And so they have to make signs about the question they're asking him. He was, stuck both, he was struck both deaf and dumb when he refused to believe the angel. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John, and that word is, is is emphasized in the original game. That's his name. Get over it. <laughs> and they were astonished. Why? Uh, maybe they're wondering how Zacharias could have known what, what his wife had called, named the son, but I think more likely uh, they're astonished because John is such a surprising break with tradition. In the first century, the name you gave to your child was more important to relatives than it is now. And some of you may doubt that with your relatives. But um, naming 
your child after his father implied that he would walk in the steps of his father, carrying on his work. So little Zach would become a priest just like his dad. Naming him John said he's got a different future. God's got a different purpose for him, that he will not be a priest. And that's why the people ask, what will this child turn out to be? That grabs their attention. This is unusual. This is not what happened in that culture. This, is got, this child's got a different tra- tra- trajectory. So Zacharias and Elizabeth name their son John, which brings us to the third surprising thing. Zacharias speaks. And at once, his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Suddenly, miraculously, Zacharias is able to speak. And this becomes the first healing in the whole New Testament. And what he says will be recorded in just a minute here. But I want you to read again how these people react. Fear came on all those living around them, And all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. Remember, God has not spoken for 400 years. He's been silent. He's been absent. And yet, after four centuries, the people's first reaction when they see these things happen is, God is at work. God is doing something here. That begins us to surprise, that brings us to surprise number four, the goodness of God. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, which at this point in history only happened to prophets, people through whom God intended to speak through. So Zacharias goes from being a priest to a prophet here. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The the horns of the wild ox were a Jewish symbol of power. In the house of David, his servant, referring to the Messiah, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah speaks of salvation from a Jewish sense, a sense of being rescued from your enemies and being able to live in your own country in peace and security, something they haven't had for 500 years. And he speaks like Mary did when she spoke in praise of God, as if it's already happened, as if this is past past reality. And then he speaks of his own son, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will be called before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, by the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Isn't it interesting that he describes Jesus as the sunrise from on high, the the light of the world who enlightens every person, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our, 
our, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So, Zacharias also is not just a priest, but he's a prophet. He's the prophet who, uh, he's the father of the prophet who's predicted in Malachi, who will be, go before the Lord to prepare Israel. And the surprise, the prophecy of Zacharias was the most surprising prophecy of all. Because God has been silent for 400 years, and all of a sudden somebody is speaking as a prophet. In Malachi, when Malachi gives God's word to Israel, Israel responds by blaming God for their problems and excusing themselves. And so God goes silent. And in the next 400 years, the Pharisees become the spiritual leaders of Israel. They add hundreds of extra laws, man-made laws, to the law of God to make it easier to fulfill. And as a result, Israel becomes known as self-righteous, legalistic people who think they're better than everybody and who think God loves them more than anybody. So that's the culture. And so it's interesting that in the first prophecy since Malachi, the first time God speaks through a prophet, it's not what they expect. It's, it's not a message of congratulations, you guys are doing great. But it's a message of love and mercy and grace that, that Christ will bring. Well, that's the story. That's the things that surprised, why it was so surprising to these people. What fascinates me about this story is the journey of Zacharias. Because Zacharias at the end of this story is a lot different than the Zacharias we met at the beginning. And I want to see how he makes that journey because it's the same journey God has each of us on. Remember when Angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias in the temple? He says, I got good news. That baby that you and your wife have been praying for for decades, she's going to have the baby. And uh, not only will you rejoice, but everybody will rejoice because he'll be a, a great prophet that God has pr promised that will go before him. Zechariah's response says, I don't know. How will I know that for sure? For I'm an old man, and my wife and I are advanced in years. What does Zechariah want? What's he want? He wants certainty, doesn't he? How can I know for sure? If you think that if you saw an angel, you would automatically believe whatever the angel told you, <laughs> then you're not very realistic about your own heart or about how hard faith is. Do you remember the first sin, the very first sin? Remember the serpent appears to Eve and says, uh, any trees here you can't eat of? And she says, well, we can eat of everything except for that tree over in the corner. We can't eat of that tree. Because God says, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And the serpent says, you won't die. God knows the day you eat of it, you will be like God. Discerning good from evil. And the scripture says that when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and desirable to make one wise and to become like God, she ate it and gave it to her husband, who, okay, um, we won't talk about. But that desire to be like God 
to know everything, to be sure, to not have to trust God, but trust yourself, has been deeply rooted in all of us who have taken Adam's sin. Isn't that true? And so all of us have that problem. We want to control things. We want to say, here's the way it works. Know what's going to happen. We want certainty. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Can I trust God? Or I can trust myself. I can trust God's plan and rest. Or I can trust my plan and get uptight. I can trust God's timing and just go on with life. Or I can trust my timing and get worried and fearful that things aren't going to happen when I think they should. Sin is always believing more in what I want, what I feel, what I see, what I think, than in what God says. I'm an old man now, so I relate to Zacharias. I get where Zacharias was coming from. Because Zacharias had figured life out. And if you're old, don't you feel like you've kind of figured life out now? Do you kind of know how life works? Not, not much surprises us anymore. And Zacharias and Elizabeth had figured out that keeping the law of God was to their profit. So they had become obedient to the law of God. They, they had well-managed lives. They, they managed their time and their money and their affairs wisely. They, they knew you reap what you sow, and they avoided the stuff they didn't want to reap and sowed the things they wanted. Their life was pretty good, except they don't have a kid. The problem for old guys and old gals, though, is trusting God to manage the stuff we can't manage, the things we can't be certain of, when all we have is the promise of God. Last week, um, I was driving to swimming, and that particular day, I was about 20 minutes late. And as I'm driving down the hill from my house toward the freeway, I start feeling tense. I start feeling the blood pressure kind of rising. And I think, what's wrong with me? What's going on? And I thought, because I know I waited too long to leave for swimming, and I'm going to hit traffic, and I'm going to get late to swimming, I'm not going to get in, I may not get a lane, and I'm not going to have time to get the workout I wanted, and I'm not going to have time to, to hang out with my friends and talk to them, or I'll be late for work. And I was just going through all this stuff. I know you never do that, but I was going through <laughs> that my management plan wasn't working. I might as well just go home, and it's, it's going to be a lousy day. Well, I get on the freeway, and to my surprise, there's no cars. You just zip right there. I got to swimming immediately. All the lanes were open. Strangely enough, I had a great workout, and then all my friends were in the hot tub, so I hung out with them for a while. We had a great time, and I did get to work late. But anyway, (laughs) but it's almost like God was saying, John, I don't need your plan. I got my own. 
Your job is just to do the next thing and trust me to take care of all the things you don't know about. Isn't that true? And I've been struggling with this battle of who's going to manage my life forever. And I hope that before I die, I'll finally obey. But I think that's why Zacharias says, how will I know this for sure? I mean, if I tell my wife she's going to be pregnant and she doesn't get pregnant, it'll break her heart. And if we have a kid, how do we know we won't die before he's out of diapers? I mean, if we're, how do we know who'll raise him? I mean, how do you know things are going to work out the way you say, even though you're an angel? So Gabriel, okay, I'll give you a sign. Not the sign you probably wanted. Now, did God strike Zacharias dumb and deaf because he was angry at him and wanted to teach him a lesson? No, he didn't. Let's look at Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 and why Christians go through hard things. The writer of Hebrews has been talking about the Christian life being a life of endurance. And now he explains why. It is for discipline that you endure. That the hard things we endure in life are God's discipline or training to make us like Jesus. That's the idea here. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline or train? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Have you ever met somebody who thinks that if you're blessed by God, your life should be easy? Do you realize that's not true? (laughs) That if you're blessed by God, your life's probably going to be pretty hard because God wants to train you. He wants to, he wants to uh, teach you to trust him. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us. Why? Why does he discipline us? For our good for our good, that we might share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That that word trained by is an interesting word. It's the word we get our English word gymnasium from. It's the same word. It is to be trained as an athlete. And that's the picture here that the writer of Hebrews is giving, that the hard things we have to endure as Christians are training us just like an athlete trains so he can be faster, he can be better, he can, he can do it. But in this case, it's so that we will understand the goodness of God and the holiness of God more and appreciate it. You don't discipline your kids because you don't love them. You discipline them because you love them and you know that no kid is born smart. That wisdom is something they have to attain and they attain that as you train them in it. And the same way, God does the same thing for us. When I refuse to take God's promises seriously, when I refuse to believe his warning, uh, 
He disciplines me, and that's why for you there may be limitations or obstacles or frustrations right now. It's just the, it's the training of the Lord. He is doing things in you that cannot be achieved otherwise. So why does God discipline Zacharias by taking his speech and his hearing away from him? I'm going to speculate here a little bit. This isn't the Bible. This is, this is John, okay? <laughs> Priests were scattered throughout Israel where they lived, and then they would come to Jerusalem periodically to do their priestly thing. So in the village where Zacharias lives, he's probably the wise man. He's probably the guy that people come to for advice, to understand the scriptures, to, to know what they ought to do. He, he's a good talker. He knows how to make complex things simple. That's what he's really good at. And so to discipline him, God takes away his greatest strength. So what does, what does Zacharias do for the next nine months while he can't talk or hear? Again, speculation. But I think in view of where Zacharias ends up in this passage, I think he talked to God a lot. I think he meditated on what the angel had said. I think he went to the scriptures and began to see all the promises of what God said he was going to do. All the promises of the Messiah. All the blessings that God was going to bring on Israel and on the world. And that's what began to fill his soul. No longer wanting to control things, but realizing that God was so much better than he ever expected him to be. So that when he can finally talk, he is prepared to give this incredible prophecy which ties together all the Old Testament verses about what the Messiah would accomplish and what John would accomplish because that's what he's been thinking about all that time. And of course, all this is for John's sake. It's to give him the dad he needs to raise him and teach him to be a man of faith. A man who believes in the goodness of God and the, and the glory of God and the kindness of God that he can trust just like his dad trusted. So I think this is God's discipline to take Zacharias through to prepare John for the mission that God has for him. Just speculation. But judging from this, that's what I really convinced that happened. Every time we experience the discipline of the Lord, and then, once the discipline is over, we see the results of that discipline in our lives, we have a greater sense of how good God is, how wise God is, how much better he is than we ever dreamed possible. Wouldn't you say that's true? Those of you who have gone through God's discipline, are you glad you went through it? Yeah. We are, because we see the benefits. He disciplines us for our good. And so Zacharias comes through this whole experience of God's discipline with a far clearer sense of God's great goodness. Believing that God is good is the basic battle we all face. Believing that God is as good as the Bible says he is. If we believe that God's plan for our lives is good, acceptable, and perfect, 
would we struggle to be in control? If I believe that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, would I ever be jealous or envious of what somebody else has that I don't? If I really believe that, that uh, his plan for me, that he disciplines me for good, would I ever struggle to be in control and resist that plan? All my problems come that I don't really believe that God is as good as he is. When John the Baptist grows up, he preaches a, a baptism of repentance because that's what Israel needed. That's what the law said. God says, I will bless the nation Israel. I will set them above all the nations when they repent, when they return to me. And so John comes with a message from God, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance would have been very difficult in those days. A lot of people thought they were righteous, thought they were good, thought they were better than their neighbor anyway. Why do I need to repent? And other people were afraid to repent because repentance was loaded with guilt and uh, self-loathing. I couldn't face to face, I couldn't really face the stuff that I know is wrong with me. But I want you to see something that, that uh, Paul says in Romans because it ties into this Romans too far. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What motivates us to repent? How bad we are? No. That will never motivate you to repent. It's how good God is, how kind he is. And that's why Zechariah leads with the goodness of God, the kindness of God. And Jesus continues with that. Jesus, one of Jesus' great messages is God is so much better than anything you ever expected. He's so much more loving, so much more merciful. He's so kind. Remember the story of the, of the prodigal son? Pharisees asked Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners all the time? You've got to have better things to do with your time than hang, hang out with them. And he tells them three stories. He tells them about a, a lost sheep. Remember, a shepherd has 100 sheep and loses one, so he leaves, leaves the 99 and goes and searches for the one he's found and, and keeps looking for it. And he says there's more joy in heaven when, when one sinner repents than for 99 people don't need repentance. And he tells about the lost coin, the woman who loses one out of ten coins and she sweeps the house and vacuums and turns everything up down until she finally finds that coin. And when she finds the coin, she has a party. I found my coin. <laughs> and Jesus says, that's what happens in heaven every time a sinner repents. They have a party in heaven. Then he tells the story of the prodigal son. And it's a, it's a shocking story. If you'd been a Jew, you would have been shocked at this story because this young guy goes to his father's, his father hasn't even died yet. He goes to his father and says, I, I want the share of my inheritance. He says, That's like, you didn't do that. Nobody, that was just, that was so materialistic. And they expect the story, the, and so the father threw the son out of the house and said, get lost, you money grubber. But, <laughs> but Jesus says, no, no, the father said, okay, here it is. He gives, you, he gives him, just it's kind of a picture of how we waste the, the, 
blessings of creation that God gives us. They don't even give thanks to God. Just go out and waste them and stuff. This young man goes to another land, wastes all of his wealth in, in wild living, and then he has nothing. And he's starving to death. And he says, you know, the hired men back at my house do are far more happier than I am. I'm going to go back and say to my dad, Dad, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but will you, make, will you just hire me and let me work here? So he sets Bach out. And Jesus says his father was, every day would watch for him, was look, just hoping he would come back. And that's a picture of God hoping we'll come back, looking for us to come back. And when the father sees him, he starts running down the... Now, now older men in Israel did not run. It's not dignified. It's not cool. And especially in this case, you don't run toward that crummy son. You make him come crawling on his <laughs> hands and knees, this idiot son, blowing your inheritance, and now you want to come back. Are you kidding? No. He runs to him, and before the son can even get out his little prepared speech, I'm no worthy to be called your son, make me a he throws his arms around him, weeping, weeping. And he calls for the he calls for the best robe to be put on him and, the, and the, the best sandals on his feet. And he says, kill the fatted calf. Who was the most un, unhappy person when the prodigal son came home? Kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. And that's who God is. That's who God is. That when you repent and turn away from sin, away from idols, away from your own plan, and turn to God, you don't have to worry about him accepting you. You can hear the party going in heaven. He is so happy because he's so good. He is so much better than we could ever dream. And that's kind of the lesson from this, is that God is good. He's good all the time. You can never outlive his love for you. We become Christians through repentance and faith. By repentance means turning away from, turning away from ourselves, our plan, our sins, our hang-ups, our strengths, our idol. Turning away from everything we've relied on, and turning to God by faith. Faith is believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for our sins. So we, the way back to God is open. God will forgive all your sins because of what Christ has done on the cross, past, present, and future, rose from the dead so you could live with him forever. And that's the way you become a Christian, and that's the way you progress as a Christian. Every day is another act of repentance and faith. Lord, what am I, where do I need to turn from today to grow? Where do I need to trust you more to grow? And so as we close today, I'd like you just to close your eyes and think about and ask God, show me, show me what I need to repent of today so that I can have a healthier relationship with you.